FMH podcast listeners. This is Sarah Burlingame, FMH blogger and friend of the podcast, asking for your support. We know Lindsay has done our community a profound service, bringing the voices of women in polygamy, intersectional feminism, and of course, the best and most hilarious commentary on schlocky, low-brow Mormon culture on the Bloggernacle. Please show your support by clicking on the donation link, or better yet, subscribe as a monthly member. If we believe that the work that women do to lift all of our voices is valuable, we need to support that work financially. If knowing that you had an FMH podcast waiting for you was the only thing that got you through the last Thanksgiving dinner without going full on Sonia Johnson, please give and give generously. Welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, where we try to understand the doctrine and practice of Mormon plural marriage and see how it intersects with our life today. And I'm really excited to do this episode. This is an episode that at first blush doesn't seem like it would be important or interesting, which I'm kind of ashamed to say that. Uh, I've been poked and prodded to do this this episode by a few of my historian friends, and I've finally sat down and done the research. So I just want to say that this, this episode is especially dedicated to two people I admire, uh, Carolyn Pearson and Joe Geisner, who encouraged me to do this research. Today I'm going to highlight the life of an, a woman that we don't really hear anything about Maybe those in Mormon studies know her name, but the general population doesn't know her. And it's a shame because she is incredible and her story is incredible. And learning the Mormon story through her lens is not only remarkable and fascinating, but it's enjoyable and beautiful. And so I wanted to introduce you to a woman that has been forgotten, that shouldn't be forgotten. And her name is Hannah Tapfield King. She was born in Cambridge, England to parents Peter Tapfield and Mary Lawson. Peter was a land steward and the second son of the fifth Duke of Leeds. And Mary, her mother, was a daughter of one of the most respected families of Yorkshire. Now, she she is something out of a sort of like a Jane Austen novel, or I think, you know, maybe even Elizabeth Gaskell or something. Uh, if you have seen the show, when I picture her as anyone, when you, if you go on Netflix, you can watch the show Lark Rise to Candleford. And there's a woman that runs the post office there. And this is how I picture Hannah looking and acting and, and talking and interacting with people. Hannah's earliest memory was being flogged by her mother at age two for eating some honey that she wasn't supposed to. It seems that this memory was very vivid for her and would sort of shape her life. She describes her mother as a good woman but severe. And of course, this theme would play out. And of course, in Mormonism and in the world in general, mother-daughter relationships are complicated, and Hannah would be no exception to this rule. She often refers to her mother's harshness throughout her autobiography. The remarkable thing about Hannah is she wrote and wrote and wrote, and we're going to talk about that. But we're going to read her journals. We're going to read some of the research that's been done on her, the bios. And 
you're you're not going to be disappointed. And I'm going to link to all of those. And I would really encourage you to dig through those, cuddle up uh, with a cup of hot cocoa, with a blanket over you, and read this woman's voice. And we're going to see how all of these things shaped her. And of course, I have my good friend Megan, who will be reading for her voice today, which I think really brings these stories to life. Hannah's earliest memory is being flogged. Her mother is harsh. In her autobiography, she talks about how she adores her father. And she sort of seems to resent that her mother does not adore her father like she does. Hannah would grow up in the English middle class. She was comfortable and educated. I picture her life being a lot like, you know, those British dramas. And maybe that's a little bias of me. But I would highly recommend everyone watch Lark Eyes to Candleford if you like the story of Hannah Tatfield. Like I said, she wrote. She wrote many times from poems at an early age to publishing her first book of poetry when she was age 20, and it was titled Poetic Flowerettes. She would say, quote, At 9 and 10, I became a letter writer, and the thousands I have written in my long life would form a towering paper pillar. One thing about her that I recognize within myself is she was an anxious girl. She internalized a lot of things. And not only did she seem to fear her mother's judgment and seem to, she, she seemed to have what I would describe as religiosity. Around age 12, she starts to take religion very seriously. She talks about the time a new minister comes to her parish. And I'll let Hannah tell her side of the story. The doctrine was so different. Hal and its concomitants were the pictures that he drew. I was shaken, agonized, and confounded. I feared I might be one of those lost prescribed beings. I pondered, meditated, tried to throw it off, yet dared tell no one, no anyone, my feelings, frightened to death that my mother should discover my wretchedness. Oh, what I suffered! How I prayed, though I did not know much how to pray beyond the set prayer I had been taught. But these did not seem to suit my particular case. I searched in a large book on the bookcase, The Whole Duty of Man and The Week's Preparation for the Sacrament. In some of the prayers, I found some that I thought might suit me, especially one, to be used by one under distress of mind. Oh, how many times I offered that, that and others, and then attempted something extempore. Oh, my heart weeps over that crushed and broken-hearted girl. Did the Lord hear her? It appeared not. Often would I arise in the night and, kneeling by my bed, entreat the Lord. At last, one day, I was called to see a child I know who was dying. This filled my cup. I could bear no more. I, too, was taken ill, and I heard my mother tell persons I had been made ill by seeing Richard Ship dying. But, oh, no, that only brought my overwrought feelings to a crisis. Oh, how I longed to tell her all my sufferings, to unburden my soul to her, but it seemed they were shut down as with an iron door. At last, one day, when I was a little better and we were talking, I tried to lead off into the train of my sufferings, and I succeeded so far as to let her see I had something on my mind. She arose and put her arms around me, and this act of affection, not often displayed in her, broke up the deep fountains of my long sealed-up heart, and the rushing forth of my feelings and tears was like a cataract, astonishing even to myself and most fearful in one so young. Never shall I forget my mother. She seemed paralyzed and knew not what to say. I spoke of my unworthiness, of my skepticism and my consequence wretchedness awakened by Mr. William's preaching. But it was hurried and broken with tenacity to hold back all I could. I felt I dared not, could not, must not speak and tell her all that was in my heart. 
The only words I remember her saying were that if the Lord had afflicted me, it must be for some fault of her or my father, for she considered me without fault. She said I had ever been her most obedient child and that I should no more go to hear Mr. Williams preach, that I was weak and ill in health, and that was the cause of my mental suffering, etc. She spoke to Mr. Blake of the state of my mind, and he called to see me and talked with me, for I was in a special favourite with him. After he reached home, he wrote me a kind and noble letter, which I still keep, and I answered it, highly pleased with it, and he showed it to me twenty years after as a specimen of the mind and heart of his youthful parishioner, of whom he said he ever felt proud, yes, more to love. Yes, loved. Had this man known the principles of our church, he would have taught me with eagerness and delight, and had he obtained me, would richly and highly appreciated me. As it was, I shunned him except in public, but ever retained a desire for his approval, which God knows I ever had. Well, all this made a break in my feelings, but certainly did not remove the cloud. Oh no, it rested upon me for years, long years, and well I became acquainted with silent battle and the secret strife with self, for I spoke no more of it. Though about two years after this, my father surprised me weeping bitterly one day. All were gone out, and thinking and expecting no interruption, I gave way to the generally sealed-up fountain and let it flow freely. My father clasped me in his arms, but offered no words. I expect, though silent, their eyes and their hearts were often upon me when I thought none observed me. He went and fetched my sister Margaret to me, and she came and knelt and clasped my knees and said the words girls say to each other in their own loving, simple way, and for the time I became composed more to comfort her than any that recalled me. No strange and inexplicable mystery. It seemed nothing could dispel that dark spirit from my pathway. There it was, by me, over me, around me, forever, in scenes of gaiety more crushing than ever. I was born with a joyous spirit, loving play and romp and fun, but ever since I can remember I had pensive, melancholy feelings at times. But at this period it appeared to have absorbed my whole being, no doubt it arose from a highly poetical temperament, which often engenders morbid feelings, especially if there's no outlet. And again, everything tells upon such a soul tenfold. Others talk and express their sentiments. I could only feel. At this period, I thought and pondered and meditated till it was too much for the young mind and frame. Oh, how often did I pray, and in the dead of night I would arise and kneel by my bed and pray. I weep over that girl even now. Had the Lord forgotten her? Had he no compassion? Then it would pass this pondering moon, and I would be cheerful, but, oh, dreading its return, and so it came and went, not for weeks and months, no, for years. I passed through courtship, marriage, maternity, before I was eighteen in a few months. Yet through all these changing scenes, there was the same dark, brooding spirit over me through y'all. My very soul seemed steeped in the waters of Mara, and yet how I struggled to shake it off, to be free from it, and to attain that happiness for which my spirit panted and which was alone my native element. That period of my life looks like a dark valley of the shadow of death to me. Yes, at the portion of life generally described by all is so bright and joyous, I was crossing Erebus. But I anticipate. She just has such an amazing voice, doesn't she? Hannah would have neighbors that she would develop a friendship with, and these neighbors would be important in her life. She describes this this girl that she admires, it's her neighbor, that she sort of envies because this woman has this sort of wild beauty and becomes her friend. And uh, this girl who becomes her friend would later become her sister-in-law. 
Hannah would say this about this girl and her family. Her brother, the boy of whom I spoke, grew up to be a man and we to be great girls. It seemed he admired my eldest sister and paid her some attention, she being then 16, I 13. She was a small, petite figure and very beautiful in appearance and certainly very attractive. I was tall of my age and was, as I was, I really can form no idea of what sort of being I exhibited. This I know. I was only a large-sized embryo. My soul slumbered much, and when it did wake for a few moments, none knew it but myself. Yet I think it left a few external traces. I think it made some sign. This I know. My father loved me, and his love was my exceeding rich reward in those days. And my brother loved me, and I thought he was proud of me sometimes. And this was all the love and coquetry I knew. Well, to return to the young man's penchant, at least after suppose, halting between two opinions, for some little time it was decidedly seen that I was the one that had fixed him, as the needle turns to the pole. I confess I felt somewhat pleased, for my heart was fancy-free, and he had many embellishments around him, had spent some years at a first-rate boarding school, conducted by a Church of England clergyman, was au fait in manners, danced well, rode admirably, and the best and finest of horses, which was a charm in my girlish eyes, and is now whenever I see a fine horseman, and was withal a highly moral character, and an only son, and above all, loved me to a perfect passion. This acquaintance opened a new phase of life to the village girl. It threw an importance and consequence around her that was new indeed to her and was another charm. She became the chief among ten thousand, the altogether lovely, to him. She was the ocean to the river of his thoughts, most flattering to a girlish mind. Yet often did I tremble at the feelings I had inspired because it seemed I could not reciprocate them. Yet I thought I loved him. When I was fourteen, the consent of parents was asked. My father gave his with reluctance, though he could find no fault, yet no doubt with his knowledge of character, and of his and mine in particular, perhaps he sensed there was not congeniality. But he gave it. My mother highly approved of it. She was pleased with his moral worth, and it was an excellent match in a worldly point of view. And though she was not worldly-minded altogether, she had a provident spirit, and her daughter would have no fortune when she married, except the material of heart and brain which was in them. And now looking back on those girls, I feel truly they were not poor. But someone says there are but three things wanting in this veil of tears. The first is money, the second is money, and the third is money. And in that we were not rich. I had not been educated at boarding school as he had, and which gives a prestige in the eye of the world. But I had been judiciously trained. The rudiments of learning had been committed to me. God had given me abilities, and I did not let them rust. He had had much money spent on him, but he had no taste for learning or knowledge, and hence he left school with a letter of introduction, that he had spent so many years there and finished his education with a clergyman, was an only son, and his father wealthy, kept the best society into which, of course, he was introduced, could dot he polite to his father's guests, joined the hounds six once a week, mounted on the best horse in the field, which could throw the dirt in the face of anyone he felt disposed to so allow him to do. Hence, of course, young Tom King was a jolly good fellow, and when such evenings would close with one of his father's most sumptuous dinners and the best of port and sherry in the neighbourhood equal to any nobleman, why, no wonder he made unto himself a name. He was as liberal as his father was, and the motto of their house was assuredly hospitality. Yes, in the best and noblest sense of the word, for the poor man was ever fed there as well as the rich in all times. 
and far and near was known the ale that filled the glass of Denford Dale, accompanied by the English roast of which the English loved to boast. And every other dainty cheer that to the epicure is dear, t'was truly t'was a bright specimen of a fine old English farmhouse, and the master, the originator of the whole clique, animate and inanimate, that surrounded him and formed an orbit in which he verily was the centre. This man was decidedly a character. To my girlish mind, he was the most formidable personage I had ever come in contact with. I trembled before him, and yet, after I was married, to win his look of approval was my constant aim. And verily it became an attainment, though I had many obstacles to surmount and many jealous spirits to encounter. But I tried to win him with all my heart and soul and strength, and I conquered. Yes, the strong man became as clay in the hands of the girl. Did she boast? Did she use her power unwisely? She honoured him and loved him, and with her woman's heart she bowed before him at all times, even when it was necessary in self-defence to assume the high look and the proud tone which he loved to awaken me, that he might have the pleasure of seeing the fountain sparkle and bubble up. But I have before traced this being, and I will here transcribe it. A strange and explicable family they were. Oh, that I could comprehend such mysteries. So, like something out of a Jane Austen novel, she becomes engaged at 14 in sort of an arranged marriage by her parents, uh, you know, to establish her well-being and her financial future. And she would marry at age 17 in 1824. This would put her comfortably in the middle class. Thomas was the only son of a wealthy uh, tenant farmer, and he would go on to do similar work, and he took over his family's 220-acre farm. So they had a comfortable home, and they could hire servants, and they had gardeners and shepherds and laborers out in the field. It was really something from one of these novels that I'm talking about. But it wasn't easy for Hannah. She would struggle with her marriage. Uh, it seems that she, they were not a good fit, both intellectually and spiritually. And the religious tension would play a role in their marriage for the rest of their lives. Her husband was a good man, but it seems she really struggled, struggled to love him in a romantic way. She she would try to convince herself to be kind of caught up in, in the romance of it and would find herself disappointed. She described the first year of her marriage as being very difficult. And, of course, um, it would be very difficult on her body as well. She would lose her first three daughters. Her first pregnancy ended in a stillbirth after a very difficult labor, and her second daughter died at 14 months. And then her third child born was also a daughter and would die at four months. And uh, she talks sort of about how you you build up a resistance to poison. You, you, ta you have enough doses of poison that it doesn't affect you like you used to. And she kind of explains that losing her children like this does this to her. And uh, I guess that would be good because she would eventually have nine live births, but only four children would survive past early childhood. Memorandum. Domestic calendar, April 13, 1840. My beloved Owen was seriously ill with scarlet fever. Good Friday. Alarmingly ill. Delirious all day, and so dreadfully so at night. Oh, how very wretched I felt. Was my knee tardy to kneel, or did my anxious heart ask without fervour for the life it sought? Heaven knows. Saturday, April 18th. The disorder at the crisis we easily believe what we hope, and I hoped all things with regard to my boy. 
and for a time appearances seemed favourable for us. Easter Sunday changed his room. Mr. Ramsay carried the dear patient himself to the sofa in the best bedroom. He was quite himself then and looked... A blessed angel, I shall never forget how he looked. Little did I allow myself to think I might have known by those beautiful for earth. Had even the face of an angel at all times, and now it was lovely indeed. April 27th, Monday, about ten in the morning. Seth was born to me, instead of the beloved Abel. I was so soon to lose. So soon. And yet hope blinded me. May 4th, the dear invalid was brought into my room and set by my bed. I tried to talk playfully and cheerfully to him of his little brother and so forth. He tried to smile, but, oh, what sadness was in that smile. I told him I should be down in the best parlour on the following Sunday, and he and I would spend the day together, both being invalid. Darling boy, how he tried to enjoy the idea. Sad reverse for me. All that remained on earth of him was in the parlour on that day, alone in his coffin, and I trying to say thy will be done. His angel spirit had passed from me to an infinitely better parent into glory. May 7th, Thursday evening, about half past nine o'clock, aged eight years and six months. As his strongly, Mama, Mama. Like many women, she worried about her children. She had the sort of mother's guilt plaguing her, especially their spiritual well-being. Perhaps I felt too keenly. If I measure myself by the mass of mothers, I certainly did. But it was so. I felt how awful it would be, how utterly unendurable it would be to me should I see in afterlife if they did not turn out well. And in such a such a case, it was my fault. And hence I struggled to speak and act that example and precept might go hand in hand and that hereafter my conscience might bless and not curse me. And truly they, my children, daily blessed me, for I could see they were, like me, struggling to do right and prepare for future usefulness. They were children of good abilities, but retiring and unobtrusive in their nature. Well, they grew, these children, and they grew in knowledge and intelligence and in wisdom. Yes, they had much wisdom. They were accomplished and yet domesticated. And at ten years old, I gave each a portion of household work to be her own peculiar dis duty, no other person was to ever do it unless she were ill or out visiting, which was a rare occurrence. At fourteen, Georgiana made all the butter, did considerable of the cooking, such as the plastery, cakes, etc., plain and ornamental, needlework, and was never a moment of the day idle. Louisa, at ten years old, took charge of her little brother, Tom Owen, washed and dressed him every morning, taught him his prayers and little hymns, took charge of his linen, mending, and putting on strings and buttons, darning his socks, etc., and was a good, kind, loving, and watchful mother to him. I well remember how she alarmed me one morning by attempting to carry him down the back stairs. Her foot slipped, and to save the child, whom she clasped tightly in her arms, she took the brunt of the fall herself. Consequence was, the breath was shaken out of her, and when I reached her and clasped her in my arms, I felt she was either dead or her back was broken. She soon struggled to regain her breath, and I mechanically raised her to see if her back was saved. Thank God! Oh, did I not thank God who has spared my precious devoted child! Here is an example of what her day-to-day -day life was like in England. And I think this is important because it sort of is going to be juxtaposed later on to her life in Utah. Walked on the parade. The colonel called, looked over some Polish and paintings, statues and so forth. The major taught us to play at a cart, 
and to deal the cards in a particular manner. Drank tea and went for a walk in the Campion Hills. A fine, rich prospect from them. Came home, had some music, supped, and had our usual entertainment of fun. Went to bed at eleven o'clock. July 8th. Slept well. Up at half past seven and walked to the baths. Drank a glass of water fresh from the springs, which I like better than having it warmed. Kept it down. Walked on the Roman road home and to breakfast at nine. Read part of The Siege of Kenilworth. Beautiful language. The incident's good, thrilling and romantic. And what have we to do with romance? Dull, sterile reality is ours, and romance is a delicious dream that for a short time steeps our senses in forgetfulness. Well, perhaps we should indulge such dreams sometimes. At any rate, they beguile us from ourselves for a time, and self is not a very pleasing theme at all times. Dined and played at Eckhart with the Major, but not being accustomed to late hours, so sleepy that I was obliged to go and lie down. At this time, I enjoyed life in a considerably good degree. I had attained peace of mind and a satisfaction in my religion. I had been brought up to worship in the Church of England, yet I often felt I belonged to no church on earth. I had a creed of my own, even the creed of my soul. There I was a true worshipper. I felt God was my father and my friend. I adored him and gave him my soul's worship, the worship of my inner life. To him I constantly dedicated my children and daily sought his aid that I might bring them up in his love and in his admonition. And certainly they were angelic in their spirits and bowed to my control as the flower bends and again rears its head beneath the congenial solar sun. She was living in Cambridge shortly after her 40th birthday and becomes introduced to the LDS church. She's sort of introduced by her dressmaker in 1849, who is a working class woman and starts telling her all about the gospel. And she says she believes easily and wholeheartedly. It would be 15 months before she would meet another member of the church, but when she finally attends a sermon by an American elder, she was baptized in the River Cam this very same day. She was very judged by her neighbors and community, so much so that she has this experience with her neighbors. Christmas Day, 1850. Gave all the men a Christmas dinner. I stayed to help cook it. My mind very much broken up and agitated by Mrs. Hawthorne coming and telling me what a fearful people the Mormons were, had all things common, etc. She agonized me, but I did not let her know it. I defended the people and stood firm to my principles, but her dagger was quivering in my heart. Others, too, were always sending me some horrible thing to read. Brother Johnson was away, but I wrote to him and had to wait and suffer until his answer arrived. Christmas Day, my torture had reached its climax. It was all I could do to go into the kitchen and ask the men if they'd enjoyed their dinner as was my wont. I felt I was changed and as white as death. If I put food into my mouth, I often could not swallow it. It seemed to choke me. I was in a dreadful frame of mind. I absented myself from the meetings. I knew it was no use to ask my parents or our clergyman. In my agony, the words came to me, If any lack wisdom, let him ask of God. I arose from the parlour and went to my bedroom and knelt down. I felt like a lost being. I was indeed stranded. I hardly knew how to pray. At last, the thought came to me, Why should I feel so dreadfully? I have only done as the Bible commands, and I will only be the Lord's. And in a moment I broke out into a dedication of myself, told him I would be his and no other, 
that soul and spirit for time and for all eternity to him and no other. In a moment, the cords that had tightened round my brain slackened. I felt a renovating influence steal gently, almost imperceptibly, through my whole system. I felt palpably a change had passed over me, but it was almost sceptical. I could hardly believe a prayer could be answered so instantly, and I was afraid to stir lest those dreadful feelings should return. Some time I continued kneeling after I had left off speaking. Then I gently rose. I felt weak, as though recovering from an illness. I sat down in my room. After a while I descended to the parlour, but felt afraid to move or read or work, lest the horrid feelings should return. For days I felt weak, as though recovering from an illness. But those same feelings never returned to me again. Bless the Lord. New Year's Day, 1851 Blessed forever, blessed by my God, who hath cleared my mind of the dark clouds that hung over it like a pall. O oh, my Father, never let it return, but keep me thine, body, soul, and spirit, for to thee I dedicate myself with all the power I dare call mine. O oh, Holy Spirit of the Father, dwell in me forever. January 2nd, 1851 Blessed be God, I have found the peace which I had lost. Before I was baptised, I consulted no one but my God and the light which his spirit had put in me, and then felt happy and right. But the opinions I have had forced upon me since have agitated me awfully. I then determined to hear nothing against the LDS, knowing that the world knows nothing of them, therefore they cannot judge us. I then cast myself entirely into the arms of my Saviour and to the guidance of his Holy Spirit, and directly I felt a calm stealing over me, over the tempest of my soul, as if a voice had said, Be still. I cast myself at the foot of the cross and said, If I perish, I perish. Now, baptism wouldn't be easy for her or many of the saints. Mormonism was uh, spreading like, like wildfire, if you will. And, I mean, this was influenced by the Romantic period. Basically, it's this movement that valued intense emotional experiences. And where the Enlightenment had sort of rationalized things, Romanticism reacted against it and placed aesthetics and emotion as the highest value. So if you felt powerful emotion positive or negative, that sort of confirmed or denied your experience, right? Where do we hear that? That's a very Mormon idea. In fact, you were encouraged to feel as much as possible and as deeply as you possibly could and even sort of chase those experiences when you could. And, you know, this would peak between the early 1800s and 1830s. And so it would be right in Hannah's formative year. And, you know, Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility sort of satirizes the romantics. Sort of this idea of, like, gazing out of the house to the lover who's just jilted and, you know, and she she is moaning, saying, Willoughby, and then she catches pneumonia. This is sort of this romantic idea. And we can see this is very much influenced in Hannah's life. Memorandum, 1850 Christmas Day, one of the most wretched, if not the most wretched, days of my life. Oh God, hold me up and keep me safe. November 4th, 1850, I formally changed my religion and was baptised by Elder Joseph W. Johnson, buried in the waters of baptism according to the orders and example of our Saviour Jesus Christ and my ever-dear Georgiana at the same time. 
'twas a most important and grand epoch in our lives. Language is perfectly pure right to describe my feelings, but as I was buried in the womb of water, I felt this is baptism. Oh, may this deed, this obeying literally the command of our Saviour, be registered in the records of heaven. So she gets baptized, and uh, people are having these experiences. And of course, what was happening in America was also in happening in its own way in, in England, where people were starting new movements. The Church of England was sort of became dull and uh, boring and very stagnant uh, in this sort of Georgian period. And all these sects start to pop up and people, you know, are living in communes and things like this. So this was not unique, but Mormonism sort of catches fire there. And right away, rumors start to emerge of Mormonism being of common people, that all things common, and that was not a good thing. That was meant they even share their women. So prior to Hannah immigrating to America, she gets rocked by the same news that all of Britain would be affected by in 1852 and 1853, the announcement of polygamy. And of course, I've talked about this in another episode. But uh, for Hannah... She had heard rumors, just like the rest of the saints. They had heard rumors, and they would say, oh, it's just people fighting against God. But then she would go to a conference, and she would hear the news. And this was with Apostle Orson Spencer in December of 1852. And, of course, she she goes to hear these Mormon elders speak. She takes her daughter with her down to London on a train. She takes Georgiana, Georgie. And her son-in-law, Claudius, and Claudius's father, Daniel Spencer, who she calls Mr. Spencer. And a week after the meeting, she wrote, um, she would write the following in a letter to a fellow convert and close friend, Elijah Larkin. Well, now a few words on the events of Sunday last. It was a day never to be forgotten by me. The meeting was held in the splendid Freemasons Hall, which was a perfect cram to overflowing. Georgie and I were favoured with chairs on the platform. In the afternoon, the revelation was read, which I expect set the world in a blaze. Oh, brother, I shall never forget my feelings. It had an extraordinary effect upon me, for though I had known for a year that such a principle existed in the church, when I had it read, and some things in it which I did not know, I confess to you I became sceptical, and my heart questioned with tears of agony, did this come from God? I could not speak or shed a tear at first. I felt overpowered, stunned, as it were. We had a cab home, Mr. Spencer, Claudius, Georgie, and I in it. Claudius, seeing my state of mind, got up as he sat opposite to me and kissed me affectionately and asked me how I felt. That was sufficient. The floodgates of my heart were burst open and I wept like a child. He soothed me, and but for the kiss and the kindness, God knows how long the evil one would have helped my, held my spirit in bondage. My eyes seemed to rain tears. When we got out of the cab, I asked Mr. Spencer Sr. if I might speak to him. He kindly walked up and down the square with me while I asked him if he knew that the revelation was from God. He was very kind and said everything to comfort and console me and build up my trembling faith till I became calmer. I then went to my lodgings close by and there I wept, unrestrainedly, till the agony of my feelings subsided. Now, historian Ben Park has done a piece on her on the Juvenile Instructor blog, and I will link you to that. And according to him, he says, quote, 
It is impossible not to be struck by the amount of emotion Hannah records. Her immediate response was shock and skepticism. She bursts into tears as soon as they are on the car ride home. She has an emotional walk with Daniel Spencer, an elderly leader in the church who had just returned from a mission, and then wept again bitterly in the privacy of her own home. While she was not at immediate risk of having a second wife thrust into her family due to her husband's apathy to the gospel, she had attended this conference with her daughter who was married to a priesthood-holding respectable Mormon man who might be, and later, was expected to marry many more wives. Less poignant, but still important, must have been the sting of knowing that the church she had defended to her Cambridge community, which involved often denying accusations of moral infidelity supposedly taking place in Utah, was indeed associated with a practice she found repulsive. Her pleas to Mr. Spencer must have been fraught with despair, as even recording them days later, she felt like the need to highlight her insistence on whether the priesthood leader knew that the doctrine was from God. The letter was a way to both purge and relieve that harrowing drive home, end quote. And we see this, we see this being torn. And of course, like I, I mentioned, one of the earlier podcasts about this news hitting England, uh, tons and tons, thousands of people that were converted now start to apostatize. They say, no, thanks. I did not sign up for that. And there's the stories of like the missionaries holding people who are crying, just like Hannah or the little girl, I think that comes up to one of the missionaries and I forget his name. And she says, is it true with tears in her eyes? Is it true that Brigham Young has 89 wives? This was, this was hard for them. Her baptism brought her a lot of trouble. You know, Mormonism was already this de- in the midst of this debate in the Cambridge area. And Hannah, who was a highly respected member of the community, starts to get condemnation from her peers. In fact, it starts to really, really affect her in, in ways that are really uncomfortable. She has people in the community starting to call her out on it. And that seems to be the hardest on her the most. And then her parents strongly disapprove of this decision. And of course, we know how much she cares about her mother. And apparently when she announced she was coming to Utah, they almost died, right? Her relationship with her brother, who was who she was very, very close to, she has all these letters to him, virtually ends and they never repair this. And her mother is deeply, deeply upset and would write strong letters to her. And, uh, and of course, her father dies upset at her decision. And this was something that she would struggle with the rest of her life. She would write. My mother and father are apprised of our intended emigration. And my mother wrote to me this morning about it. Such a letter. Hey-ho, these letters cloud my soul. That they do not bow me down quite as much as they used to do. That shows I'm stronger. Well, I must leave all in the hands of God. It is his business. Although Thomas, her husband, never fully embraces Mormonism, he, by all accounts, loves his wife and children and yields to their desire to immigrate to Salt Lake Valley. And he was deeply resistant at first, but his wife and daughter gave him a lot of pressure. He becomes sick later that year and... They all sort of feel like this is his curse for disobeying. It kind of weakens him and prepares him. So under this pressure, he gives up his tenancy, sold his holdings and equipment, and finances the travel costs of his family and a number of other converts. He doesn't just take his family. He pays the trip for everyone else. And he would try his, his hand at farming in Utah, but he would not do well. The family would end up in poverty in Utah. In fact, to the point where they almost lost their house and Brigham Young would have to intervene. 
A study done by Philip A. M. Taylor would find that about 11% of British immigrants were middle class that were coming from the years of 1840 to 1869, and the remainder were working class. So only 11% were sort of wealthier. January 16, 1853, in which month we set sail for America with all our family, including Claudius and Georgiana, according to my covenant which I made June 16. 1851, viz. that I would go to Zion in 1853, God being my helper. At that time, there was not a shadow of probability that I should be enabled to carry out my covenant, but faith taught me to hope all things, to believe all things, and I believed. And we did not forget works. January 16, 1853, Mr. Robert Barber came to spend the day with us and to say goodbye. Elder Spencer, Claudius, and Georgie being with us, we dined and enjoyed ourselves very much. I then went to join a little prayer meeting at the Shepherd's. Brother Larking being there, and he administered the sacrament, had sweet prayers, and richly enjoyed the spirit of God in our meeting. Brother Larking and I will not easily forget that day. Immigrating would be just as troubling as her baptism was. The family came over in 1853, and they have this terrible, hazardous, lengthy journey with all of these problems. It took it takes almost a year to get there. Their transatlantic crossing was almost shipwrecked mid-ocean, and Hannah's 13-year-old son gets sick that he so sick he almost dies when they cross the plains. And then her beloved older daughter Georgiana dies of mountain fever just eight days after they arrive in the Salt Lake Valley, and she writes this harrowing journal entry about losing her sort of soul sister, her soulmate. That dies. Both of her parents would die within two years of her arriving in Utah, and her mother is said to have allegedly died of a broken heart. Um, now one of the biggest jewels that I found in her journal is her description of Emma Smith. On their way to Utah, they stop in Nauvoo, and this quote brings Emma to life more than anything I think I've ever read. We went to the mansion house and saw Joseph's wife Emma. Was rather agreeably surprised, for I'd heard much of her being a large, vulgar woman. But the impression she made on me was not that of a vulgar or coarse woman. Power is the principle that seems to be stamped on her, but it's like the lion when couchant. Her mind seemed to me to be absorbed in the past and lost almost to the present. Her manners are not pervasive on account of this coldness and stolidity. Neither does she seem to desire to form any intimacy or renew it, for she knew Claudius and all his family. She did not ever seem to respond to kindness, but she looked as if she had suffered, and even seemed to respond to kindness. But she looked as if she had suffered, and as if a deep vein of bitterness ran through her system. I felt sorry for her, and would have given her ocular proof of my sympathy, but she seemed to shun, or rather chill, at every demonstration of it. We dined at her. House, which is the hotel of the place, and after dinner we were shown into the room of Joseph's mother. She sat pillowed up in bed. She made a great impression on me, for she's no ordinary woman. I feel it would be vain to attempt to describe my feelings with regard to her. I'm going to let them run into poetry, for prose would not suffice for me. She's a character that Walter Scott would have loved to portray, and he would have done justice to her. I do so in my own heart, where. And she has a niche for all time. She's blessed us with a mother's blessing, her own words, and, and my heart melted. For I remembered my own dear mother left in England for the gospel's sake, and the deep fountains of my heart were broken up. 
Georgie gave her the ring off her finger that I gave her on her fourteenth birthday. As she asked Claudius, had he brought her no present? And he told G to give her one of her rings. I then told her to give her the one I had given her. She had many on her hands, but they were presents from Claudius and other friends. I would not have let her give it to anyone else. Her journal entries coming across the plains are beautiful and detailed and astonishing. And I would recommend that you all read them. I mean, it's the story we all know. It's a pioneer story. But somehow the life and the way that she describes coming across the plains is phenomenal to read. I mean, it just really gives it life. In Utah, the kings would build a small house and they were often without food. Here we see Brigham Young start to take an interest in her. And one day after running out of flour and skipping several meals, um, Hannah is feeling really low. And Brigham Young's daughter bursts through the door, lugging 30 pounds of flour, only saying, quote, father had sent it. And Brigham would help her and her children out uh, many times. Like I said, he would intervene on her behalf to, to save the home. She also writes about other apostles. She writes about Heber C. Kimball um, and... You know, she was at a social event with him, and as she's leaving, he stops her, and he looks her in the eyes, square in the eyes, and basically tells her that her father will accept the gospel in the next life, and that gave her some comfort. But she was not a fan of all the apostles, though, and this is a great story, particularly um, someone she didn't like was Jedediah M. Grant. She had heard some of his sermons, and historian Leonard Reed, who writes a little biography about her, points out that this might be due to her religiosity and remembrances of being traumatized by the sermons in her youth. We do know that when she comes to Utah, she's rebaptized again in December 1st, 1853, and this was not uncommon. I've talked about this before. Many saints would get rebaptized. So she gets rebaptized on December 1st, but throughout the winter of the late 1850s, Hannah would have more interactions with Jedediah. There were special meetings that were starting to be held, and Mormons were urged to adhere to commandments of God more strictly. And this is when this this sort of, all this conser- really conservative doctrine and theology comes out of the LDS Church. Preaching happens where they place the emphasis on the practice of plural marriage and the necessity of it. And the adherence to the word of wisdom starts to become a thing now. Um, it becomes this test, this sort of loyalty test. How much can you abstain? Your attendance to church meetings becomes particularly important if you're gone. If you're not showing up, then something's wrong with you. Personal prayer, if you're not praying a certain amount of times, it's sort of this pharisaical approach and it becomes wildly popular. You know, we call this the Mormon Reformation, and we talked about this on the podcast with Joe Geisner, but several sermons, you know, even focused on improving your personal appearance, your dress, and your hygiene. And Jedediah Grant, of course, would die shortly after his winter tours where he's holding these special meetings. He was allegedly the victim of pneumonia. But the influence of this Reformation is unmistakable. And we still see remnants today. There's some really like important things that have been pulled out of these discourses that we still see seeping into Mormonism today. And it's a little scary. <laughs> Let me give you an example. On December 30th, 1856, the entire all-Mormon Utah territorial, territorial legislature was rebaptized for the remission of their sins, and they were confirmed on the hands of the Twelve Apostles. I'd like to talk about Jedediah M. Grant more. Uh, Gene Sessions has written about him um, 
I think that the article is titled Mormon Thunder. But he, but Jedediah M. Grant was known as Brigham's Sledgehammer because of his fiery speeches during the Reformation in which he used this inordinate amount of condemnation language, right? Hell, fire, and damnation. And it's interesting because Jedediah M. Grant is kind of a nut, but he is the father of Heber J. Grant, who would later serve as the president of the church. So that will come in later as well. Historian Dean L. May notes that the more zealous Reformation efforts are not universally accepted in Utah. And we see this with Hannah Tatfield King because she doesn't just take what's given to her and accept it. And that's what I love about her. She, uh, she had fo- helped organize a literary club. It was called the Polysophical Society. And I think we've talked about that before. Uh, Eliza R. Snow was there and Lorenzo Snow was there. They were sort of liberal. And he calls it, uh, he said it had an adulterous spirit. So Hannah writes, quote, Well, there may be, for he says there is, and probably he understands it. To me, it all seemed good and nice. Of course, a little vanity and folly. And that one sees in the tabernacle and everywhere, end quote, which I love. It's just like this dig at Jedediah M. Grant. In a speech titled Rebuking Iniquity, you can look that up online, Rebuking Iniquity, given in October of 1856, Jedediah says some crazy stuff. But one of the things he says is, quote, I say that there are men and women that I would advise to go to the present immediately and ask him to appoint a committee to attend in to their ease and then let a place be selected and let that committee shed their blood. We have those among us that are full of all manner of abominations. Those who need to have their blood shed for water will not do. Their sins are too deep a dye. You may think I am not teaching you Bible doctrine. But what says the Apostle Paul? I would ask how many covenant breakers there are in this city and in this kingdom. I believe that there are a great many. And if they are covenant breakers, we need a place designated where we can shed their blood. Talk about old clay. I would rather have clay from a new bank than some that we have had clogging in the wheels for the last 19 years. They are a perfect nuisance. And I want them cut off. And the sooner it is done, the better. If I hurt your feelings, let them be hurt. And if any of you ask, do I mean you? I answer yes. If a woman asks, do I mean her? I answer yes. And I want you to understand that I am throwing the arrows of God's Almighty among Israel. I do not excuse any. I am speaking to you in the name of Israel's God, and you need to be baptized and washed clean from your sins, from your backslidings, from your apostasies, from your filthiness, from your lying, from your swearings, from your lusts, and from everything that is evil before the God of Israel. End quote. I mean, that is just one clip, one insane clip of many sermons he gives. You can look these up in the in the journal discourses. This is intense stuff. And of course, Hannah has this experience with her preacher as a child. And of course, this is super intense for her. And then, of course, she says something interesting when she's trying to come over in the plains. I don't know if you realized it in the quote earlier on. She says that she couldn't keep her covenants if she didn't gather west with the saints. So... To her, and uh, the baptismal covenant meant gathering with the saints. They thought the world was ending. She does this. They give up all of her stuff. She has put her money where her mouth is. So to have a man like Jedediah M. Grant say, we have all these covenant breakers, and I mean every single one of you, and you deserve to have your blood shed, is a little intense. Here is what she says about him and about this time. 
Brother Grant has done some strong preaching lately. After this conference, the Reformation was instituted principally by Brother Grant, thinking the people had become adulterous, thieves, etc. It fairly raged. Every bishop had the cue given to him, and he rose up and lashed the people as with a cat of nine tails. The people shrunk, shivered, wept, groaned like whipped children. They were told to get up in meeting and confess their sins. They did so till it was sickening and brought disease. In the midst of it, Brother Grant was seized with a fearful sickness. An evil spirit seemed powerless when they administered to him. He raved, had visions, etc., and at last passed to that born from whence no traveller returns. I do believe many in those times were frightened into praying and confessing sins they never committed. It was a fearful time for all, whether it did good or was instituted by the Spirit of God is not for me to judge. I leave an open verdict, even in my heart of hearts. Only I know it was a fearful ordeal, and fear is a slavish passion and is not begotten by the Spirit of God. Now, even though she seems to not approve of Jedediah M. Grant, it seems that her family is caught up in this, this Mormon Reformation. Her husband, Thomas, although not a Mormon by her own words, was even baptized then on March 14, 1857. And Hannah, again, would be rebaptized on March 21st. Hannah was sometimes, I mean, as all people are, all whole, interesting people. Uh, she wasn't perfect. She was a little bit judgmental of the poor. She talks in her journal, sort of condemning them, talking about how the sort of new money, these poor, uh, uneducated working class all of a sudden get money and they make fools of themselves, fools and folly. And, uh, she criticizes some women that come visit, visiting her like Sarah Pratt. She sort of resents this sort of new money. You know, because of her English ways and her manners and her education, people often confused her with an aristocrat, even though she was never part of the aristocracy. But she kind of didn't correct it. She kind of let that stay. And this would sort of be her disposition that people would give her credit for, very refined, even though she was poor. Although her husband was now baptized, she would lament for the rest of her life, his sort of lack of commitment to the faith. And it caused her some problems and it caused her a lot of anxiety. She was a covenant keeper. And during the 50s and 60s, many sermons, of course, are preached about the importance of plural marriage, not just the importance, but the necessity that you have to be sealed. And, uh, you know, the priesthood uh, sealings sort of, I mean, the plural marriage sort of becomes this loyalty test for the leadership and it becomes a big deal. And Hannah starts to develop a relationship with Brigham Young over the years. She is very talented and gifted. Brigham Young had interest in the talented and gifted people of his congregation. And she was no exception to that either. She would donate her time, talent, and money to the church. And in return, Brigham would help when possible. And he even once asked her to sit at the head of the table at a party and to dance with him. July 4th, 1856. Grand celebration here. In the evening, a ball and supper. I went with Claudius and Louisa. At supper, Brother Young arose as we entered the supper room and asked me to honour him by sitting beside him. I did so and became the observed of all observers. In the course of the evening, Brother Young asked me to dance with him. Of course I accepted. Home at one o'clock. This day to be remembered as a happy one. Interestingly enough, with Thomas still alive, Hannah would be sealed to Brigham Young in 1872. So Thomas is still alive. 
she gets still to Brigham. It's unclear but doubtful that she lives with him or has any sort of like romantic, earthly marriage, sexual relationship. But it is clear that she adores, respects, and admires him very much. Thomas would die two years later in 1874. So we don't know if he was aware of the ceiling or not. So she sort of is unique. I mean, not unique. This was not all that uncommon, but she was a polygamist, but not actually living it, right? And Mormon women today can kind of, kind of relate to that. Hannah would go on for the next decades of her life to write, take care of her children, and she would do an incredible amount of work. She would write for the Women's Exponent. She published poetry. She wrote for the Salt Lake Telegraph, the Desert News, the Juvenile Instructor, Tulage's Quarterly Magazine, the Mountaineer, the Contributor, and the LDS Millennial Star. She would say, I write as a bird sings, free as the air and untrammeled. I cannot who blames or praises. I sing my song for the love of singing. She died on September 25th, 1886, at the age of 79, and she was eulogized by many prominent people. And there's a newspaper clipping of the time of her death that referred to her as, quote, naturally aristocratic disposition. Orson F. Whitney would say at her funeral that she was, quote, possessed of a refined soul, cultivated mind, and surrounded by the comforts and luxuries of life, numbering among her acquaintances, many in the upper walks of society in her native England, end quote. And she was missed by many of the contemporaries after her death. And there are several occurrences in the Women's Exponent of articles written and meetings held in her remembrance. And of course, Hannah, who had lost all this wealth, would say she never regretted it. So I hope you've enjoyed this life of this incredible woman as much as I have. I encourage you to go read about her and read her own words because they're fantastic. And again, a special thanks to Megan and for doing the beautiful reading. And thank you for listening and supporting the FMH podcast. Please leave a donation or become a subscriber. And you can do that on feminist Thanks for listening.